Today, I'm joined by Alex List, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Educational Psychology, Counseling, and Special Education at the Pennsylvania State University. Her work focuses on how students learn from, evaluate, and integrate information presented via multiple texts or across multiple disparate sources. She received her PhD in Educational Psychology from the University of Maryland in College Park, and she wrote a wonderful article in Educational Psychologist uh, with Patricia Alexander, entitled The Cognitive Effective Engagement Model of Multiple Source Use. So Alex, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me, it's a pleasure. Great, so uh, this is a really wonderful article and I think it really advances the field of multiple source use and so I'm excited to talk to you about it. Um, could you just briefly summarize the article for us to give everyone a sense of what you were talking about? Um, absolutely. Um, and so if it's okay, I'll kind of contextualize it a little bit too. So um, the field of multiple text use is a pretty new one. It dates back to kind of late 80s, early 90s. Um, and particularly with the proliferation of the internet, um, there started to be an attention to the fact that a lot of times students read not only kind of one text and answer some comprehension questions about it, but that a lot of times if you think about searching on the internet, what you're doing is you're reading a lot of text and you have to put that information together in some way. Um, and so my work in the field of multiple text use is really interested in understanding those processes and particularly cognitive processes. And so a lot of the field, and it's a, it's a newer field that's been developing over the last 30 years or so, has been really focused on those cognitive processes, how students evaluate texts, how they integrate texts, how they select text texts based on relevance. And so in graduate school, I did a lot of research on how students work with multiple texts. And this article really came out of a series of studies where we had students read a set of texts and then write responses based on them. And so uh, we would look at the responses and we got kind of really different varieties in terms of the quality of responses. And some responses would be really good. And by that, I mean, they were kind of long and they had a lot of text-based evidence and they seemed to be connecting information. And a lot of responses were much shorter and a lot of responses were really long, but they didn't seem to be based on the texts. So there were these interesting profiles that seemed to be emerging. Um, and so uh, it didn't seem like just the cognitive aspects of multiple text use. So kind of the evaluation of text or the integration was entirely explaining uh, the variation that we saw. And so the Kane paper really grew out of trying to introduce the role of affective factors. And we are primarily interested in interest and attitudes when, when I say affective factors, but lots of other things could also potentially go into there. Um, curiosity, goals, motivation, kinds of things, but generally kind of the extent to which you are engaged with the topic and task um, that is driving your multiple text use also seems to have a really important impact on your performance, in addition to your kind of skills in terms of being able to evaluate text or integrate text. And so the CAME um, is an initial paper that introduces four profiles that can be used to kind of describe, we call them default stances. Um, and so it's four uh, default stance profiles that can be used to describe students' general orientation to particular multiple text tasks. And so there's four profiles that we talk about. Um, and you can think of them as arising at the intersection of two dimensions. The first dimension is your degree of affective engagement. So roughly, are you interested, engaged in the task? And so you kind of could be or you could not be. And the second is whether you have the habits and skills needed to critically evaluate and engage with information. 
And that's kind of you have that skill set and it's habituated to a degree R or it's not. And so if you think about it as a two by two, those two axes give rise to four potential profiles or default stances um, that students can use to engage with multiple texts. And so when students are really not interested in the task and they don't have very good skills with regard to multiple text use, um, we call that the disengaged default stance. When students are really interested in something, um, but they don't really have a lot of critical evaluation skills or they're not habituated, we call that an affectively engaged default stance. And you can think of that as kind of a real, like I'm really interested in a particular topic and I just keep reading and reading about it and accumulating information, but I'm not really critically thinking about the information or evaluating it. When I have the critical skills and I'm interested in a task, you have what's called a critical analytic default stance, or rather what we call a critical analytic default stance. And that's when you have both that affective engagement and that motivation piece to engage in deep level multiple text use, and you have the skills to be able to do so. And then the fourth profile, um, which actually occurs the least often in our data, um, is an evaluative default stance. And that's when you just habitually have the skills for multiple text use, but you don't, you're not particularly interested in the task. So it's kind of like, I'm always a diligent reader. I always use good sources, so I'm going to use good sources, but it's a little bit um, perfunctory or heuristic. It's not really motivated by trying to understand the particular topic or kind of make sense of it. And so the CAME kind of describes each of those profiles um, and also talks about the kinds of multiple text use behaviors um, that you would expect to see in association with each of those profiles. So that, that's really helpful. And I think there's a lot there that's really interesting to unpack and that really advances the field of multiple source use. So let's see if we can hit on a bunch of things. And one of the first things you talk about in the article and that you mentioned here is that the CAME expands previous models of multiple source use by integrating this affective piece, this affective engagement piece. So is it fair to say that the previous models, the stances that they described, not that they described them, but the, your stances that they would have described were like evaluative and disengaged? Is that, are those two the ones that were the primary focus of previous models? Um, yes. So I would say a couple of things there. So first of all, I think the idea of stances is a little bit novel relative to other models. So the predominant model in this, or what I would say the predominant model in this field um, with kind of related models is the MD-TRACE or the multiple documents, text-based relevance assessment and context extraction model. And that's um, the Rue and Brit. And that looks at multiple text use as a problem solving process. And so it's a procedural model. And so it kind of says that students all go through these five steps with kind of sub steps involved when they're um, using multiple texts. And so that is, and so it's just a difference in, and so the MD trace model is obviously really influential in my work. And I think connected to the Kane model. But I think that the Kane model is more focused on the individual difference factors in the sense of defining these default stances instead of the specific behaviors that are involved. So that's, I think, the first piece if that makes sense. Um, I think the second piece is that you're right, there has been this focus on these behavioral dispositions and habituated skills. So can you evaluate text? Can you integrate texts? And less on the affective component. I would also say that there's been, and I think rightfully so, but there's been a focus on discrete skills. So can you evaluate texts? Can you determine relevance? And I think that there is a value, and that's what we try to do in the game, in thinking about them more holistically in terms of the way that you approach texts, either in kind of a critical manner or perhaps not. 
that makes perfect sense. And the, the, the default stances, I think, is a really interesting part of your model, really interesting contribution. And I have to say, it kind of reminds me of the debate in the field right now between person-centered and variable-centered approaches and the utility of each and whether uh, certain approaches should be used in certain kinds of situations. When you think about analysis and you think about trying to understand this model in the world, is does this model lend itself to one or both of those approaches in a, a smoother manner? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, so let me answer that in a couple of ways. So first, I think that you can look at this model either way, right? So you can collect individual difference factors and then kind of profile students based on how interested they are in a topic and kind of their reports on how often they evaluate texts. Or you can do a more variable-centered approach where you look at the specific behaviors um, that students engage in. And we've done both. I think that more variable-centered analyses are actually better, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but are better in validating the came. Um, and when I say behavioral factors, I really mean things like log data of students' engagement with text. So how long they're spending on texts, their navigation patterns, things like that. And we've done um, cluster analysis and things like that to look at patterns in that data. Um, but I think that the value in adopting a more variable-centered approach in terms of analysis, even if the underlying explanation is more individual-centered, is that it captures kind of the contextualized nature of multiple text groups. And so we do talk about them as um, as default stances, and to some extent we ascribe them to, I mean, we do ascribe them to individuals, but we also talk about the ability to shift between default stances. So I may be really affectively engaged by one task, but not really engaged in another. And so the default stance that I would adopt to those tasks would be different, or I could be not very interested. But as I'm reading, I realize, oh, you know what, this is pretty neat. I wonder about that. And so I could move from being more evaluative to more critically analytic. And I think adopting a variable center approach lets you look at those dynamics as they unfold during students' kind of multiple text completion, if that makes sense. It does. And you mentioned in the paper how um, people could kind of change in their stance, which I thought was really helpful to point out, because when I hear default stance, I, I kind of think of a domain general default stance. But it sounds like you're describing something that's at least domain specific, if not task or context specific. Um, I would consider it to be definitely highly, highly task and context specific. And honestly, that's one of the things that attracted me to research on multiple text use in particular, because I do think there is a domain general component in the sense of you have to do this across domains, right? We have to put together information in science and in history and in lots of different domains. But I think that particular manifestation of texts within domains. So by that, I mean the kind of tasks that students are asked to complete, the kind of text that they're looking at, what counts as a quote unquote good text really matters depending on the domain and the specific task. And I think that's really important. And so when we talk about default stances, we really mean kind of initial stances with regard to a particular task. So after I get a task or conceptualize a task as a learner, I may have a particular orientation or kind of default stance toward it. And generally, when I get certain types of tasks, I may approach them in a particular way. But there's certainly a lot of malleability and a lot of both variation in the individual and variation with regard to the task and context that arises as a result. That makes sense to me. Uh, what's really interesting about what you said is that I am hearing very clearly that there's a context-specific perspective, um, and the came takes that context-specific perspective. And in the paper you wrote about how deficits in 
habituated source evaluation skills, you know, a, a lack of knowledge of how to source evaluate effectively produces behaviors that might look like it's a domain general phenomenon. But the sense I'm getting is it's not really domain general as much as it is there's maybe a lack of variance in terms of their knowledge of skills, and that's leading to similar behaviors across contexts, but that the model is really context specific. Is that an accurate depiction of what you're arguing? Yeah, I think that's right on. Um, if So yes, I think you're at, if I can kind of expand on that a little. Um, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is, um, I think you're absolutely right that the model is highly context and task specific. But I think the thing that's missing from the model is a lack of a developmental perspective. And I think that when you think about development, and in this case, I mean, kind of knowledge development or development within a domain, I think that's where the habituated piece comes in as well. So I think that if you're just kind of, if you're just kind of being introduced to the idea of how do I work with and synthesize texts, then there are fairly domain general evaluative behaviors that you would want students to do. You would want them to check who the source is and think about citations and things like that. But I think that as you see students progressing within their domain, you would expect those skills to become more domain specific or those evaluative criteria, right? So as I learn more about psychology, I might look at not just you know, is this published in a peer-reviewed journal, but I might start to look at sample size or I might start to look at effect size or things like that. Um, And so I think that those things can still be habituated. So whenever I read a study, I always think about the rigor of the methods, but I think they also develop um, as you develop within a domain. Um, But I think the other kind of part of what you said is really spot on in the sense of a lot of times we see students doing different kinds of behaviors that may look the same, but actually may mean very different things depending on their orientation. Um, And I think that that's the place where kind of theory comes in and helping to understand the difference in what it may mean if I'm accessing a lot of text. So am I accessing a lot of text because I don't understand what's going on and I'm trying to find an easy one? Or am I accessing a lot of text because I really want to find the best source or something like that? Gotcha. Okay. So, so that helps me. So it, it does seem to be the case that you're drawing upon ideas uh, that were forwarded by your co-author, Patricia Alexander, in terms of her model domain learning, that the domain generality or specificity or context specificity of behaviors in some ways dependent upon one's knowledge, interest, and strategies within a field or discipline. Is that? Absolutely. That's, so that's, that's really interesting because it does suggest that um, th- these domain general manifestations sometimes are a function of just lack of exposure to a discipline, which it's it's tough to think about a the discipline of the internet, but the internet is the elephant in the room when thinking about multiple source use, as you mentioned. It's, it's, it's a major issue for uh, many people in today's society. How do we help people be better critical consumers and users of information on the internet? And what I'm hearing is that that might be difficult to do because it's more domain specific. Well, I think it's important to separate out academic versus non-academic tasks. So I think there's um, times when I need to synthesize information on an academic topic. And then I think, yeah, your kind of development with a domain is really important in terms of these habituated skills. But I think a lot of times we just want to understand things at, I don't want to say a fairly superficial level, but if you think about um, the model of domain learning, kind of in the acclimation phase. Um, So for example, there's a local ballot initiative about whether or not to uh, 
uh, tax the watershed. And I want to get kind of a basic understanding enough for me to vote on it, but I'm certainly not going to kind of delve deeply into ecology, right? And so that is academic E in the sense of um, there's academic content, but it's kind of a more of a routine kind of search task. And I think in those cases, even without a necessarily high degree of domain development, you can still have habituated skills for source evaluation. So you should still be thinking at a very domain general level about the scientific nature of sources or whether there's bias in terms of who is putting out the information. That's helpful. Okay, so that that makes some sense to me. So, you know, I, I think one of the things that I learned from your article as I read further into it was that the critical analytic stance is, is certainly important and useful, but the sense I got was that it's not always necessary. And that seems to be what you're saying here is that the task in some ways determines the kinds of multiple source evaluation skills that one might need to invoke. Is that accurate? I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that um, both task and topic are important. So there's been a lot of attention in the multiple text use literature to task, and I think rightfully so. So what you want to do with that information or why you're getting it is really important. But I think the topic is also really important as a driver of the affective component. So kind of how much you care about something also matters in terms of how much effort you're going to put into learning about it. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. So that's great. I think that's another really important piece. And this distinction between task and topic is a key factor in understanding what people are doing and why they're doing it. Um, another part of your article that I thought was really interesting was your discussion of cessation. Mm-hmm. And you suggested that um, people who have different default stances might have different criteria for kind of ceasing the multiple source use, kind of ending the task. And I guess I was I was just kind of curious, like, how are we going to get at that? How can we measure that? So I think cessation is a really interesting concept. And actually, I just finished writing a paper um, with one of my students about that. So I think that cessation is this kind of unique multiple text thing where when you're presented with a single text, it's kind of easy to know when to stop, right? So I read a text, maybe I read it again, but there's kind of a, a, a text-based endpoint. Whereas I think um, with multiple text use, and sometimes we don't get at this when we do kind of lab studies with a restricted set of texts, but I think if you think about the internet, and people have talked about this in terms of disorientation as well, there's kind of an infinite volume of information out there, right? I can keep reading and reading and reading about a topic. And so I think one of the interesting things um, about multiple text use is at some point, you as a learner need to know when to stop. Um, And as I talk about in the paper, your default stances can provide some insights into when you decide to do that. And so if I'm adopting kind of a heuristic approach, which I think a lot of students do, at least when they're writing papers for class, it's that I need three sources or I need five sources or I know my teacher is going to want two texts that agree and one that disagrees. So I can write about controversy a little bit. And that's how many I'm going to find. Um, Or I can kind of, if you think more of an affectively engaged stance, I can keep going until I get kind of redundancy. And then when I'm not encountering any new information, I know when to stop. But I think these cessation decisions um, are really key in terms of understanding how students engage with topics, because literally how much you've read about it dictates how much you know about it. But I don't think we've done a lot of work in helping students to think about kind of the volume of information they need or to spell out what are the kind of crucial components of a particular topic that I want to be able to know to make sure I comprehensively understand it. 
Um, and so I think that that's kind of a really interesting area for future work. I think that at this point, it's mostly a theoretical idea, but I think it's one that merits more understanding. And if I can kind of cite yourself, um, I think that the role of self-regulation in those cessation decisions is really important. So there's a great paper that you have uh, with Krista Muth, um, where you talk about uh, self-regulation and epistemic beliefs in computer-based learning environments, and we were just reading it. And I think that the points you make about kind of how the role of self-regulation guides students through these different phases of the task and, and students' epistemic beliefs is really important in understanding cessation, right? So kind of a particular aspect of that epistemic beliefs and self-regulation and integrating those two things is deciding when I have enough knowledge about something. Well, that's nice to hear. I'm glad that that paper was helpful. And that's a really interesting point. So the epistemic cognition literature talks about uh, how people decide what they know versus what they think or believe or doubt or don't don't know. And I don't know that folks have talked a lot about how that might influence cessation decisions, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, when have I, when do I know enough? Right, exactly. I think when do I know enough is kind of a key question. And particularly, I think dovetails back to this domain specific domain general idea, because the more domain knowledge we have, the more sense we have of these are the essential components that I need to understand a topic. Whereas if I'm a novice, I don't really necessarily know what are the elements of a particular topic that I should even be reading about. And I think that that's kind of a unique challenge within multiple text use tasks. And I think it definitely requires further work. Mm -hmm. That sounds really promising. Uh, and, you know, that leads me to another thing that I was thinking about while I was reading your paper. And, and you touch on this a little bit, but there's a lot of talk nowadays about things like confirmation bias and information bubbles and those kinds of things. How do you think those phenomena might influence the way that students interact with multiple sources and maybe shift from default stance to default stance? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that we are a little bit late relative to social psychology in some ways. Um, and I'm talking here about the role of multiple text use in looking at the role of attitudes. And I think there is really strong research for this kind of attitude bias idea um, that we tend to read things that we, first of all, in terms of, so if I could break this down a little bit more. So first of all, I think there's a selection element that hasn't been talked about where we in a lab setting present students with conflicting texts. But a lot of times if I'm kind of reasoning in a very attitude driven way, I'm already picking texts that I know are going to agree with me. So I, as a reader, I'm not going to go to Fox News of my own volition. Um, and that's kind of the first point. It also impacts how we, of course, process information. It also impacts how we scrutinize information. So we kind of approach information that disagrees with us much more critically, which interestingly, um, is what we want, right? We want students to critically evaluate information, but not in a way that's entirely attitude driven. Um, and so I think that um, there's a lot of really interesting work happening right now. Um, Matt McCredden has shown that um, students, when they're given specific in task instructions, so either asked to be less biased or asked to read things from the perspective of a librarian or a lawyer, um, they're able to kind of let go of that belief based a reasoning to some extent. Um, there's also work that's shown that um, even though there is a, a role of attitudes, it doesn't completely negate all of the skills that students have in terms of evaluation. So kind of the typical pattern of effects you see is that yes, students judge attitude consistent information more favorably, but they also judge better information more favorably. Um, and so I think that, I, I, I don't know that I have like 
a solution for um, attitude-based reasoning. I think that it definitely um, requires a lot more investigation, but I think that the wrong way to think about it would be to have students get rid of their attitudes, right? I think that attitudes are really important in terms of guiding our values, guiding our sense of the world, and they come from a place, right? They come from our experiences in the world. And so I think if you think about attitudes as delivering that affective engagement piece of you're interested in the topic, you have some ideas about it, and having the skills to still be able to critically evaluate information. So that true critical analytic stance, I think that should get you to a better place than if you're reasoning based on attitudes alone. The other thing I'd say is I think that in the attitude literature, it's hard to know what the ideal outcome would be. So, and I mean that in the sense of, so I have particular attitudes, they may be based on good or bad ideas, but I'm often concerned about or confused about whether the goal is to change attitudes. So is it good if my attitudes change? Or is it that I want to be able to appreciate information on the other side, regardless of my attitudes? Um, Or is it that I want to have just better reasons to support my attitudes? And I think that also requires further clarification. Again, that sounds like a really interesting direction for future research. And I, I think there's a lot of literature out there to support your argument that, you know, completely uh, coldly cognitive approaches to learning don't work because of all the reasons you mentioned. I mean, affect and motivation, these are the fuel that allow us to persist um, and and engage in tasks in, in ways that we wouldn't if it wasn't there, right? So the Mary Helen Imordino Yang and other folks have talked about how the emotionless classroom is not a very effective classroom. And I think that seems to be what you're saying here too, is that we can't we can't suggest to people that they need to set affect aside. That's not a reasonable or useful recommendation. Well, I also think, and I'm also thinking back to kind of Perry's stages of epistemic development. I don't think you're going to get very good engage, cognitive engagement from students if it's about a topic they don't care about. I think that you do want that kind of, you want students to care about the work they do, they're doing in school. You want them to feel like that work is important. Great. That makes a lot of sense. So. We talked a little bit about various directions for future research, and I, I, you have a number of them in the paper. And again, I really encourage folks to, to read your paper in full because there's a lot there that's really useful. Are there particular future directions that you're excited about, ones that you, um, that you think are particularly promising? Uh, yeah, so I mean, almost too many. Um, but here's kind of the things that I am working on right now that I'm most excited about. So um, so first, I think that came itself needs a lot more empirical validation, and we started to do some of that. Um, but both cluster analysis and kind of statistic, more statistical methods to get at these discernible default stance profiles, but also more qualitative analyses, because I think we do see kind of a qualitatively different mode of engagement that I think needs to be teased apart. Um, And we've touched on this briefly in this conversation, but I'm interested in two kind of specific aspects of working with multiple texts. The first one is uh, perspective taking, and that's related to what I talked about in terms of attitudes of can you adopt others' perspective, but also the extent to which students understand others' perspectives. So if you're presented with conflicting information, either with texts conflicting among each other or conflicting with your beliefs. How do you interpret that? How do you understand the uh, values and information that guides those perspectives? Um, And I'm also really interested in integration, which I think is really the 
distinguishing factor in terms of adopting a critical analytic stance, where the skills that you have in terms of evaluation and your interest in a topic should lead you to a place where you want to form coherent understanding in the sense of synthesizing information and reconciling anything that's inconsistent. And so I'm really interested in further specifying that integration piece as an outcome of multiple text use. So those are kind of the three things I'm working on right now. They all seem to dovetail really nicely with some hot topics in educational psychology writ large, right? So integration, certainly, you know, kind of deep processing and this kind of desirable normative endpoint is is really uh, a focus of a number of different areas of research in the field right now. And I heard, I heard this interest in, at least when I contextualize it within history, of almost like historical empathy empathy, right? Historical understanding, not only being able to articulate another person's point of view, but also really being able to understand it, to put oneself in another person's shoes and, and really kind of adopt that stance to feel it, not just cognitively know it. That's a really interesting direction. I think that's exactly right um, from a historical stance, but I also think that um, the perspective taking piece becomes really interesting at the domain specific level too. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So in history, there's, there's this idea of kind of seeing it through somebody else's eyes. I've been thinking about it more from a socio-scientific perspective, where a lot of times the things that we look at multiple texts about um, are these kind of scientific topics that still have a bearing on um, the cultural, societal, individual kinds of things. Um, so if you think about ecological issues or the safety of medication or various bioethical issues or pollution, all of those have a scientific basis, but they also have this human element where you have to think about economics or personal freedoms or um, po public policy and things like that. And so I'm interested in how students view those different perspectives in relation to each other. And if I can contextualize that a bit more, um, I think a lot of multiple text use has looked at controversial topics um, and kind of conflicting topics. And I think that that's, there's, there's a lot of good reason to do that. But I think I'm more interested in, um, right now, I'm more interested in when texts aren't directly conflicting with each other in the sense of opposition, but kind of different from each other because they have these different domain orientations. Um, and when students are trying to understand complex topics and multiple texts about complex topics, a lot of the time what that means is those topics are informed by different domains and disciplinary perspectives. And so I'm trying to understand how evaluation and integration and things like that happen in those much more kind of nebulous multiple text situations. It's really interesting. It's kind of a new perspective on domain specificity. Thank you. So Alex, thank you again for talking to me today about your article. And just to kind of give folks a reminder, the article is entitled The Cognitive Effective Engagement Model of Multiple Source Use. It is in Educational Psychologist 2017, uh, Volume 52, Issue 3. I encourage everyone to go out and read it. It's part of a larger special issue that you guest edited with Patricia Alexander on models of multiple source use. And I think the entire issue was a really interesting and timely one. So thank you for leading it. And thank you for talking to us today about your article. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. And yeah, I just want to highlight that it is part of a special issue and the other models um, that are talked about in the special issue are also really fantastic. So I would encourage everybody to look at those as well. Great. Thanks so much.